a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thorough Talk. Of course, I'm Thorough Bailey, and uh, this is a special day for me. And a lot of you know my story, but I don't know how many people get to go full circle twice or even more than twice. But this is the second full circle moment for me. Uh, and I'm going to basically use this to introduce my guest today. My passion for basketball came on a day when I'm spending time with my dad who loved basketball. I didn't know anything about it. But I sat down and I watched one of my first basketball games on the black and white Zenith TV set. And those of you young people listening, you don't know what I'm talking about. You better Google it. Because that TV had a couple of antennas that came off of it. And usually the knob broke and you had to turn it with a pair of pliers. But I'm sitting there watching this game and I'm digging the, the uniforms, the short shorts that these teams are wearing. But I see one guy, uh, he had an afro flowing in the wind. I didn't know who he was, but I knew he was the best out there. I asked my dad. My dad looked at me like I was crazy, like, you should know this, son. I said, Dad, who, who is that? He said, son, that's Dr. J. I had no idea who Dr. J was. I even asked my dad, can doctors really play professional basketball? And he proceeded to tell me about, you know, how you earn a nickname. And uh, my first full circle moment came when I, I tried to emulate Dr. J many times. And I got good enough to get a scholarship. Then I was drafted into the NBA. And one particular evening, I'm standing out on the court with the man I idolized. I'm scared to look up the stats of that game because I know he had his way with me. But uh, that was my f first full circle moment. My second is today because I get to interview my idol, Julius Irving, great Dr. J. Doc, welcome to the show, man. Uh, thank you, Thurl. Uh, pleasure to be on. Uh, what, a, what a special uh, introduction. And, uh, you know, this could be the third, though, because, you know, we, we had a little vacation in Hawaii. Years ago. <laughs> Don't bring that up, Doc. Come on. <laughs> we, we, had, we had a good time over there, and knocking that golf ball around in a, a, a competition for Ace Hardware. So this is probably the third time around. Hey, Doc, Doc uh, only one person was knocking it around, my friend. You, you, you're too <laughs> kind. Uh, and, and just a quick story about that. I got to invite the Children's Miracle Network. Let me invite anyone I could invite, and obviously I'm going to I'm going to try to find my my boyhood idol and invite him. And Doc accepted. It was a celebrity yeah. challenge: two players from each major sport, two ex players, yeah. and me and Doc were on the basketball end. And I'm going to tell you all, I was the comic relief. So uh, you know, <laughs> Doc, you're you're kind. But hey, I, what I want to start with, man, because this show is about okay. it's about journeys, right? I mean, uh -huh. if if we sat down with anybody, they could probably take us on the journey of their life, their ups and downs. And mm -hmm. I, I read your first book, man. It's your autobiography. And I tried to, trying to think of a word that, that would explain how I felt when I, when I read it. Um, but I, I have to say it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Any, any book that can, that can transport you and take you into that story and from the, from the, uh, from the kitchen table, with the steel legs and uh, and the the braid plaited rug, I mean, it took me back in time, and I want to I want to set this up because I want you to talk about a couple of things. But you introduced the book by saying this: "I am, of course, an athlete, a former basketball player, and while my achievements in that arena are my best known, they are not the they are only the mythic part of my story. I want to be candid about my life. I want to recall." with you everything that I've seen and done and try to make sense of this ongoing journey. While it has not always been easy, it has been exciting and I believe emblematic of our time. 
I mean, it starts out with a powerful statement. But tell me uh, kind of what what really prompted you to tell your story after all these years. Well, thanks thanks for asking about that. You know, I uh, this was a start and stop project for the better part of twenty years. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in my in my forties, in my middle forties, uh, I mean, I was away from basketball for. Uh, you know, less than a dozen years, six, six or seven years. Uh, I was doing some TV work, doing NBC Sports, and uh, eventually uh, worked for the Orlando Magic uh, in the NBA. And um, and I, I started and stopped book projects because I was trying to write it uh, uh, by myself, for myself. And I wanted to, I wanted to put the rest you know, the many paperbacks that had uh, come out that were 100% basketball-oriented right. and made it seem as though that was my whole life. Yeah. You know, so it really wasn't my story. It was somebody else's interpretation of what happened to me after I left high school, left college, and eventually, uh, you know, left the pros. So it was trying to capture you know, that, that window of time. And there were, there were a few different paperbacks. There was probably three or four. And, you know, each one, each one that I read, I was like, you know, these were unauthorized biographies. So they really weren't biographies, you know, they were unauthorized uh, books, you know, about that particular part of my life. So, so I started and stopped this project a lot of times. And then I eventually got, uh, with a, a ghostwriter, um, and Mr. Tao, he was uh, he was really good. He um, he's amazing. We knocked it out, and we knocked it out in like we knocked it out in like sixty days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sixty days would have been years in the making. Uh, came to fruition in a sixty day period, and we and we actually in that period we traveled back to Long Island mm-hmm. and spent time. There we, uh, we we went down to my friend's house in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and just had us time. We had the whole house to ourselves, and each day, you know, we just worked on the book, and we had dinner, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and in between breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we worked on the book, and maybe maybe hit a few golf balls, and uh, and then we spent time in Massachusetts, and and, uh, and spent time in uh, uh, Virginia. Because those are the places that were really pivotal in terms of being change agent yes. situations, like where something happened in one of those places that you know just made me pivot in life and think about things a little bit differently. And I was, I'm mean, gonna tell you something. You talk about those pivotal moments, man. I'm reading this book and I'm with you every step of the way because uh-huh. you and I, I, I think some similarities, even though you're a little bit older than I am. Um, it, it, you experienced some of the things in, in during that time, racial equality, those kind of things. And there's a point in the book that really captured me because you're, you get in the car with your family, you're going south to South Carolina and you cross the Mason Dixon line. Right. And yeah. now where you're raised, Sign right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and where you're raised, right? You, you, you had in your neighborhood. There were whites. There were blacks. You know, when you guys went out to play, you played together. And then you crossed the the Jim Crow line on this trip to go visit your uncle and your cousins. And mm-hmm. things are different, right? They're different. Oh my goodness, they are. They're very different. You know, you, you see the side. It's welcome to Klan country. You know, as soon as you hit North Carolina, you come out of Virginia, you hit North Carolina, and ironically, Daryl. Last night, you know, I'm binging on my TV, right? And I, there's this story on, which is called "The Best of Enemies," mm-hmm. and it's about uh, the guy who's the president of the Klan in North Carolina or in, in Durham, North Carolina. Yep. And he's an avid uh, political activist. And I'm sitting here while I'm just doodling on my desk or whatever, you know, playing Spider Solitaire, and, and this story comes on. And I just, I don't know what made me watch it, but it was exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> yes. It, 
this was uh, this was the beginning. It started. The story was based in 1971, and uh, and that's when the schools, you know, got desegregated uh, through the efforts of these two, who were considered to be the best of enemies, became lifelong friends, even though, you know, they came from from different places. So, uh, interesting reminder, interesting coincidence. But uh, for me, yeah, going south every every uh, summer and visiting my, my mom's uh, side of the family mainly, even though both my mother and father were from South Carolina, we, we usually went to visit my mom's family because my mother and father separated uh, very early in their marriage, right after my little brother was born. Uh, and and we, didn't, we didn't know a whole lot about uh, his family until later, you know, they kind of, they, they, they kind of came around, and uh, I knew the ones in Chicago, but I didn't really know the ones in South Carolina, ironically. But now, we, you know, we've come full cycle with that and uh, have good relationships on both sides of the family, which is very important to have. Absolutely. And, Doc, yeah. uh, I, I need to read another part of your book here because one thing I really found out about you in this book is that you like order, right? You like things to be in order. <laughs> you started that at a very young age, organizing, right? And, yeah, and so yeah. you take this trip and you're talking to your cousins about, well, you know, why can't we go and get a, get a Coke in this place? Why we got to mm-hmm. go to the machine? And mm-hmm. you say at the end of that trip that I stand by the rules. Move with care and respect and wariness and agree to abide by the penalties of failure and rewards of success. Despite what I've seen in the Jim Crow South, the injustice that makes Bobby hate, and even because you you couldn't understand, you know, you didn't hate because that's not kind of where you were from. And so you said, and even the violence of our own Parkside Gardens, where even even as a child, I can get a sense of some lives just aren't valued as highly as others. I seek shelter in the security of rules. The, yeah. the snugness of being tucked into line, of being a number in a column rather than a soul out of place alone. I enjoy rules, and games have rules. A basketball court has rules and order mm-hmm. and laws and requirements. It is regulated. Mm-hmm. I like that aspect of it, the predictability yeah. of a universe, the basketball court, the football field, where we all are set in motion by the same structures and standards. And this was my favorite line. My basket is worth no more or less than yours. Oh, my <laughs> goodness, man. <laughs> that sounds like some profound stuff. Huh? <laughs> you know, and not only profound, but, but just true, right? Just true. And just yeah. for you to, to kind of carry and live your life that way. Uh, growing up, because the the one thing I, I really connected in this book was about rise, whether it was about mm-hmm. rising up in society or you rising up in the air. <laughs> yeah, when, attitude is altitude, right? That's right. You jumping up those stairs, right? And so, yeah, yeah, and everything has a foundation. And uh, and for me, uh, fortunately, you know, my mom, who was an educator. And, uh, you know, uh, taught school when she lived in, in, in uh, South Carolina. And then when we moved, they moved to Chicago, and then they moved to New York. And by the time she got to New York, you know, they didn't acknowledge her credentials. So she just went out and did domestic work yeah. and got herself together. And then she got herself a booth in a hair salon. And the next thing you know, it was her hair salon, whatever. So she just achieved in stages. And she was a total inspiration uh, to me in terms of, you know, having some uh, order, having a plan, having goals. And and for me, you know, people used to ask me, well, didn't you get in trouble when you were young? I said, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was make my mother's life more difficult than it was by doing stupid stuff. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? And I've done some stupid stuff, but not enough to get arrested. Or you know, uh, you know, get uh, disciplined, or have my family be penalized, have somebody wanting to come after them, and uh, and I was in a, a, a high-rise uh, project environment, so there was a lot of crazy stuff going on, 
it just uh, it just wasn't attractive uh, to me, and that doesn't make me better than anybody else. But the, the good turns in my life and the good decisions in my life have, have enabled me to do better than a lot of people. Right. And, Doc, was, was part of that responsibility because, you know, I read the part about Tonk, your dad, who wasn't around mm-hmm. early on in your life, but and, and he died when you were young. But I, I, saw, I saw a lot of in that book, I'm the man of the house. So yeah, it, did you feel that yeah, responsibility? I wanted, I wanted to be the man of the house. You know, with my mom was <laughs> older sister, and they they constantly kept me in my place. But I, but being the oldest male, yeah, uh, you know that there's something about that. I mean, you know, it's just like, I mean, even with animals, and they, you know, we we just got a cat recently for my for my daughter, my 14 year old daughter. While she's quarantined here, so I went and bought her a cat. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Cat walks in the room and walks over to me because I'm the biggest one in there. I'm the dominant male. Yeah. Whatever. He like jumps on the bed and he comes over to my side and he like feels safe there. You know? Yeah. He's a little kid and he feels safe. So even animals have that instinct of you know moving towards the dominant male and the dominant male theory is real. Yeah. It really is. I believe it. So, Doc, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back and, and talk to you a little bit more about the book and, and specifically okay. quality, uh, and then we're going to move okay. on to some recent basketball stuff. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Thorough Talk. And I'm just having the time of my life right now. I'm talking to my, my, uh, when I was a teenager, I won't say childhood because I'm not going to yeah. make, make Doc feel that old, but uh, my. Hey, man, talk- I, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of you. Know? I hear you, bro. Uh, yeah. so, so, Doc, uh, it's interesting because obviously there wasn't a ton of equality, especially between races and even. Uh, with women, but you know, I'm reading in the book, and I'm uh, I see this name Juanita pop up, and mm. it reminds me kind of uh, you know kind of how I grew up. There was always this young lady who was like a great athlete, and and but there were sometimes that people, you know, because she was a female. I don't care if she's a female now. I'm not picking her, you know, to play or, or whatever. But you learned early on. She was if you ever got a chance to pick, and she, and she was there, you would pick her. Talk about that, no that kind of learning equality, and uh, especially back yeah. in that day, and, and understanding what talent was. Okay, so this is circa age 12, 13. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're living in the housing projects in, in, in Hempstead, Long Island. And, and our park was Campbell Park, and it was right next to the project. So, you know, I mean, kids came from miles around to play in Campbell Park, and we would go miles away to play in Kennedy Park or uh, other parks, you know, that were that were in the county. And uh, and Juanita Hayden and Deborah Carroll were two friends of mine who could play basketball. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they played better than a lot of the guys because they had a passion for it. And, and uh, they never played on the Salvation Army team that I played on because they didn't have a girls' team. And Archie Rogers and I, you know, right. we we were boy, boys team, but uh, but but those two, 
I mean, they 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 had it, it, it was, and and uh, Juanita had four brothers, so four older brothers, <laughs> and she was better than them. I mean, you know, they they were into bodybuilding and they were into other sports. They weren't really into basketball, but she just had that passion for it. She could handle the ball and she you know moved left and right, and, and she could spin with it. And, and she could shoot it and find a way to score. And Deborah was, you know, under the boards and grabbing rebounds and, and posting people up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was really great. And, and uh, you know, and, and they're not uh, a part of my, my life right now, but they were a significant part of my life in terms of opening my eyes, you know, to things that I didn't know about. And, and, and unbelievably, Later in life, you know, uh, when I had a basketball camp, Nancy Lieberman came to my camp yeah. at age 15, and then she went to camp for a week because she was like the best player, the best player in my camp. And then a few years fast forward after that, Annie Myers Drysdale yeah. came into my life, and you know that was like 1974. We've been friends, we've been fast friends and tight friends, you know, ever since then. So my mind has always been open you know, to a, a more liberal lifestyle and liberal understanding that, you know, people are people. Yeah. So so it's not, you know, for us to be uh, judgmental. And as I said before, you know, uh, you're not better than anybody else. You, you have, if you play your cards right, the opportunity to do better and, and do well for yourself, but you know, never, never stick your nose up in the air until you're better than anybody. Thanks. Powerful so, words, Doc. We're all God's children. Though. That's right. We know that. That's right. So you mentioned it a minute ago. You know, Roy's watching you and Archie at the park, right? So he invites yeah. you to, to come and play on the Salvation Army team. And, and uh, I know, yeah. I think it was your, your dad that passed away, or your, it was your dad or your uncle that passed away, and you took a trip and you came back. And um, you were, the Salvation Army team was all white, mm-hmm. right, until you and Archie got there. Yeah. How was that experience? Yeah. I know you you, yeah. you had some I tough times. Have, still have that photo framed and in in the house. It's just me and Archie there, and then the other ten guys. And uh, you know, three of them were one from one family. So we had Terry and, and JoJo, and uh, Jackie Conroy. And we had Paul Fields, and and, and uh, we had you know the other kids. I can't remember all of their names, but if I look at the picture, I'll know right away. Tommy Gunn Brethel. <laughs> Uh, who got a scholarship and went and played ball in Canada, and then Don Ryan was the—he was the glue. He was the guy who, uh, who who understood that we were in an integrated community. The Salvation Army was for not for ourselves, but for others, and others included everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, not just select people. And so, uh, you know, we we learned to carry the books and the ball at the Salvation Army because you couldn't play unless you got decent grades. We had to bring our report cards and the whole nine associated with that, and we had to take it to Don's mother. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember going to see Don and and his mom, and and she made me recite poetry to her because I I slipped up and said that I was getting involved in a poetry contest. She said, well, let me hear something. You know, Start right now. Don't, don't waste time. Don't beat around the bush. You know, so I I did my little recite with her. And, uh, you know, it was just another moment to create another memory and, and understand that in life, because Don is white and his mom is white, needless to say, but it wasn't about black or white. So right. my experience up was in an integrated society. So even when I started hearing about segregation, uh, mainly in the South, or whatever it was, I was real baffled by it, and and, uh, and and my cousins, especially the older ones, you know, they were talking to us about the do's and don'ts every time we came to visit, and whatever. I was like, that's some nonsense, uh, or whatever. But you know, you had to comply as best you can. And one other thing, that one other point I like to make about the difference between North and South back in in those years. You know, there was bias, prejudice, and segregation in the North as well. And it was just masked behind, you know, the economics. If somebody 
in the South really doesn't like you. You can walk in the store with all the money in the world in your pocket, and they're not going to take care of you. They're going to be like, you're not welcome here. Right. But if you go in North and you have money in your pocket to buy stuff, they might not like you. They might be talk, they might talk about you behind your back, but they're going to take your bread <laughs> <laughs> and, sell you, and sell you the product, you know? So so it, it's, it, that, that was the main difference that I noticed when I was very, very young. That I, I know that guy didn't like, you know, some of the kids who went into the store, but they were buying stuff. He's like, as long as they're spending their money, they're good. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. hey, so, uh, you know, everybody has somebody that, you know, they, they, they look at as they're growing up as a role model. Mm-hmm. You know, I had you as mm-hmm. one of mine in basketball, and I was reading um, that you had a couple as well growing yeah. up in basketball. I did. I did. I did. You know, Ray Wilson uh, probably would be at the top of the list. And he was uh, he was actually my uh, varsity basketball coach, and he didn't let me get on the varsity until my junior year. Uh, although, interestingly enough, because uh, I had played at the Salvation Army, I played organized ball for a, a while since like age nine or ten. Uh, in my freshman year, I played on the freshman team, and then their season ended, and he moved me up to the JV. And then their season ended, then he moved me up to the varsity. So, I, so as a freshman, I played in like one or two varsity games. And then he did the same thing the next year. Once the JV season ended, he moved me up to the varsity. And then in my junior year, he bought me off the bench. You know, it mm-hmm. kind of sounded like Michael Jordan's story, right? He bought me off the bench. And then I came in and, you know, kind of, I don't know what happened. I guess I took over the game. And the next thing you know, I, I won that precious award called the most improved player in the county. And then the next year, my senior year, I the most valuable player in the county. So so everything was through a progression. And, and Ray Wilson was there all along after uh, I graduated high school. Uh, I had my freshman year at UMass. And in my second season, my coach there uh, hired him to come in and, and be the assistant coach. Mm-hmm. And he eventually, uh, he was assistant coach. And when he left UMass, he coached at Davidson College uh, for a few years. And when I got into the pros, he came to work for me and managed my office. Wow. You know, until passed a few years ago. Uh, so he was he was in his 80s uh, when he passed. And he was, he was my guy, man. He was my office manager, but he was my role model. He was my mentor. He was the guy. Hey, you know, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, I can't sleep. I mean, I could call him and he'd say, yeah. but drop over, let's, let's, sit, let's sit down and let's work it out. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, he hey. was that guy. He was that guy. Such a special man. As far as your game goes, uh, you mentioned Elgin Baylor in your book. What'd yeah. you What'd you like about Elgin? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> man, kind of like what, you know, what you were saying, watching that, that black and white TV and, and, and watching those short pants. Yeah. When they had a, a like a game of the week on and, and Elgin was in it. And there's no way I was going to miss that game. And, and uh, you know, just watching him move on the court, the way he handled, he grabbed rebounds and, you know, he'd throw his weight around because he was always, you know, physically strong and, and, and skilled and, and didn't talk a lot of trash. You know, he, he was, he was, he was one of those guys, like like the model that I like, you know, the, yes. the Kawhi model, the Tim Duncan model, the guys who let the games do the talking, and you know, even like you, you know, you went out there talking a whole lot of trash. You let your game do the well, talking, especially not the you. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, so so for me, uh, yeah, that was Elgin Baylor, man. I, I, I had the honor and distinction of. Speaking for him at one of the uh, luncheons, the players, the retired players, yes. uh, lunch uh, in LA. In LA was then 2016, and I think they had the game in LA, but maybe it's 2018. Um, but his, he and his wife, they asked me to speak because he's had some throat issues right. or whatever. I just, you know, even at my age. A couple of years ago, <laughs> I'm in my late 60s, and I'm still honored, you know, by this guy who inspired me so much. Because I, you know, as soon as I'd see him play, I'd go outside. 
Yeah. Like, yeah, you could try that. <laughs> and you weren't even you. You were always Elgin Baylor. Uh, like. <laughs> I need I need to try that, man. I just saw Elgin Baylor do this. I, I, and then guys started talking to me in New York. They started talking to me. You know, you're playing like Connie Hawkins. Yeah. And I had no idea who Connie Hawkins was because he wasn't on TV. And Elgin Baylor was. And I said, I'm patting my game after Elgin Baylor. And then I realized the similarity between the two. You know, even though Elgin was, you know, stronger and, and more grounded, you know, Connie floated and stretched out. Ass, yep, did tricky stuff and whatever. And I said, yeah, you, you know, you don't have to just patting yourself after one guy and then be that guy. You can take a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and a little bit from the next guy, and and then you become who you are because you be you you piece those, you take those pieces to the puzzle. And you put it together, and then you're a new product. Right. Well, it seemed like you were, you were um, whether reinventing is the word or not. So you're in the ABA, uh, and, and, obviously, mm-hmm. and obviously you're doing your work. Um, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, the, the ABA folds, and, and you go into the NBA. Where do you think, how do you think progression-wise and game-wise, because at a certain point, uh, as you start to get older, you have to be smarter. Right. So um, talk to me about that, that evolution of you as a player early mm-hmm. on in your life and as you got older. Yeah. So my, my career was, it was three stages. You know, there were the first five years. Right. And were with the Squires and the Nets. And, uh, and those, those years, uh, to me, are irreplaceable. You know the uh, the the freedom that I enjoyed getting out of college and doing something, getting paid, that, where I was doing something that I would do for free. Right. Uh, and then the influence of Al Bianchi and the influence of Kevin Lockery, uh, because uh, they they saw <clears throat> something in me that they didn't try to harness, and they didn't. You know, they did. They they made demands in terms of leadership and conditioning and effort, but both of them were very interesting because you know we, we go in the locker room, we put all the stuff on the blackboard, and then usually late the first quarter or the second quarter or whatever, and they'd be like, "Doc, the stuff we got on the board ain't working. <laughs> <laughs> you need to do something." <laughs> So, I mean, that's like giving you the green light, girl. You know, it's just like, man, okay, yeah. I, I, I take that challenge. I, I love that. I love that challenge. And, and uh, you know, so those first five years, uh, they were very special uh, in, in that regard because I had a freedom and then uh, got into a contract dispute with uh, the Nets uh, because the, 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 the leagues had decided to merge and they were going to take, you know, the uh, nine, the, the fourteen teams that were in the NBA, and merge with the four teams that were in the ABA, and make an eighteen-team league. Right. So, so prior to that, you know, uh, uh, NBA at one time was like eight teams, and then was nine teams, and then was eleven, and then and when it got to fourteen, and then the ABA made it made it eighteen. Um, if if I had to do it all over again, I, I would have given more thought. To staying with the Nets, really, as a moving on and, and taking on that challenge of going into the NBA with that team. Uh, the Nets had made a trade for Tiny Archibald and George Johnson, you know, who was shot blocking center, and uh, so they had made a couple moves. But you know, we were holding out, and I was influenced by my agent and manager. Figured he knew more; he knew better than me. And as it turned out, you know, he knew how we could get more money. But he really didn't know what was best for me because Philadelphia became a very special type of challenge because, you know, once I went there, you know, it wasn't like I was welcome with open arms. Right, right. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, you know, with we kids, like, you ain't getting my spot. <laughs> 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 it was like that, for real. Uh, and so I had to... Take a spot, <laughs> right? 
uh, eventually and, you know, show, uh, you know, just show them. Yeah. And just show them. So there was a lot of, there was some wasted time and some wasted energy uh, trying to blend in. And, you know, the general manager asked me, well, do less. We don't need a guy who could score 30 points and dominate a game or whatever. We got we to gotta play team ball. We got to, you know, we got we to gotta do this. And we got we to gotta keep our other superstars happy. <laughs> so, All right. I ain't never heard no stuff like this, but, you know, I, I had the contract. It was more money than I had ever seen in a, in a contract. And and I said, okay, you know, I've, I've done a, all the individual things that a player can do in these first five years. So now the focus is strictly on, you know, winning the championship and right. whatever it takes. If I have to take a back seat, if I have to sacrifice, then. I'm okay with doing that. And um, that began the seven-year chase for the title. Yeah. And you <laughs> got there. Years, yeah, seven years, you know. I mean, it, now at age 70, it doesn't seem like it was that long a period of time. But at that time, it was very long. And the, and the silver lining there was that we, we got to the finals three of the first six years, and, and we came in second. Right. And nobody loves second. But as you move on later in life, you know, sometimes you say in seven years you win a title and you get three runner-ups, and you did something pretty good. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. Well, I played yeah. – uh, I was a teammate of Mark Ivaroni's, and and, and uh, mm-hmm. Mark was on that yeah. championship team with you, and he used to talk about not just not just the championship all the time, but what a great teammate you were and how that was just a, an amazing time. Yeah. But um, talk about that year in particular, the championship year, and, and, uh, and how yeah. you got to the pinnacle of – I've won the championship. Okay. Uh, yeah, so the NBA championship year, it, it's the irony is uh, we go on we go on a uh, a mission. Pat Williams, Bobby Jones, and it's like seven it's like seventeen people uh, from the NBA. So we go over to China, and uh, we're you know we're witnessing to people in private, uh, you know, because they had. And like a no Bible law, right? But we had, you know, these little miniature Bibles, and we, you know, it was really a, it was to see how well uh, you could uh, do, uh, you know, missionary work internationally with the brand and with the, uh, you know, uh, popularity that we have. You know, how we could deploy it in ways other than just doing it in the U.S. Right. So we're over in China, and, um, you know, I'm at I'm at this stage in my career where I had always said, man, if I could play basketball with the folks for 10 years, you know, that would be a good run, and then it's time to move on and, you know, do whatever I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And, um and the average amount of time that a player played was about six years right. in in pro basketball, four years in pro football, and five in and we were five and probably um, five or more in baseball and hockey. But six was that magic number in basketball. So I was well past the six because you know my first year in the NBA was my sixth year. Right. And here we are, you know, six seasons into it, and so I'm thinking. You know, this window could be closing, and as close as we've been, you know, three out of the six times, and uh, maybe I don't know the answer. And once you get older, you know, you got to rely on the younger players and inexperience, and, and, you know, experience does mean something. Right. Uh, contrary to what Bill Russell said. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so uh, we're there, and then Pat Williams comes into my room, and he said, we just got Moses Malone. <laughs> so I'm like, what? Aren't you the manager? He says, yeah, Harold went and made the deal, and we got Moses Malone. So ML Carr was one of the guys on the trip. And, you know, we had that rivalry with Boston, and, and ML was a former ABA player, you know, turned bad guy once he got to Boston. <laughs> so... <laughs> so, so uh, so we now we make the announcement. We we all get the dinner that we got Moses Malone, and then I look over at him now, and he's there. He's just holding his head. He's just 
shaking his head. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so it was one of those moments, and I, I just, I was like, well, you know, maybe this window isn't closing. Maybe it's being thrust wide open instead of closing. And once we got back, man, we went to camp. And from that first day with Big Mo, I mean, you know, just, just everything just changed. We, we weren't doing center by committee. Right. But we got, got rest their souls, Caldwell Jones and Daryl Dawkins, you know. Who, who's who's going who's, who's to hold Who's going to hold down the post for us? Is it Daryl? Is it Caldwell? Is it Harvey Catcher? Instead of having three centers, you know, we basically got rid of all of them and got Moses, and then we had uh, Mark McNamara, and then we made a trade and got Clement Johnson. Mm-hmm. So we ended up with Clement backing up Moses, and then we had uh, McNamara and Reggie, and uh, not Reggie Johnson, but uh, Earl Curitan. So we had four centers, four forwards, and four guards. And we said, we better take our chance. We're going to go to war with this. You know, it was not the conventional makeup because a lot of teams, you know, would have you know, maybe five guards, five forwards, and two two centers or whatever. So uh, it was unconventional. And, you know, the other centers, I mean, Moses could go the whole game if he needed to. Yeah. And, and I, and I, as I said to somebody yesterday, you know, this, this trade, it was good. It was great for us, but it was also good for him, you know, because Moses had been a journeyman superstar. Right. <laughs> you know, he was. He was in Utah first, and then he went to St. Louis, then he went to Portland, then he went to Houston. Now he's coming to Philly. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> this guy is coming out of high school. He, he was probably looking at this thing saying, hey, am I ever going to be anywhere for forever, yes. you know, and be able to call it home? And fortunately, when he went in the Hall of Fame, he, he chose, you know, his Philadelphia jersey to go into the Hall of Fame and to go into 50 greatest because that was where he was happiest. And he was only a season and a half. Wow. You know, midway through the second, the next, the next season, Moses had an eye injury. And, uh, and so he had to sit out. I remember and he that. And he and the owner got into a squabble. And the next thing I know, they were shipping him off to Washington. Yeah. But Jeff Rulin, I was like, oh, my goodness. So the window is closing again. <laughs> well, um, I, like you I, said, we got, yeah. Yeah, I remember that but, championship, and I remember, you know, specifically you and kind of the jubilation of the that journey that you had taken with Philly, and you yeah. finally got there. Yeah, the relief. Yeah. The relief, and then, and just kind of, I mean, it was sombering in, in terms of, you know, when I was the champion in the ABA, champagne was flying, and I was drinking it, and I was <laughs> Three in the morning, I ain't nowhere. But I never drank a sip of champagne. I popped a bottle and sprayed it on some people and just uh, hugged Bobby and hugged Clint and just said, man, we got here, guys. We got here. We're going to be able to hold on to this for the rest of our lives. And and we have. Yeah. And we have. So, Doc, um, I want to move a little bit more to the present. I don't want to overstay my welcome. You've been gracious enough to be on with me this long, but I want to talk about today's game and, and how you've seen yeah. it evolved and the players and, and you talked about centers. I mean, I don't even know if people use that that phrase in today's game, but how have you seen it evolve and you like it or yeah. is it you're indifferent? Yeah. You know, I, I, I go back and I, I want to personalize it because in 1964, Oscar Robinson was the most valuable player in the league. Right. And, and uh, he won that award and in 19... 19- 81, I won the award. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that the award had gone to a, non, a non-center since Oscar. Right. So there was a stretch there, 17 years or whatever that was, 64 to 81. How much is that? <laughs> it's 81, it's 17 years. Centers had dominated. Centers were the key. Centers were the, you know, you, you you couldn't win a championship without having a great center, right. <laughs> you know. Uh, so things changed after '81, you know. And then in the '80s, you had you know Bird and you had Magic and you had 
you know, I mean, there were a couple centers in there who, who, who won, but it was uh, nine centers uh, in the game. And now it's, you know, you just go back. You know, these guards, <laughs> they're running the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're like the dominant forces, you know, the Steph Currys and uh, and Will LeBron. He's, he's, he plays all the positions, but he, but he's not a center. And uh, so it's really hard. The center has become a dinosaur. And, uh, and unless they can move outside and they can play like Jokic and play like Embiid uh, or whatever, then they're going to be uh, – neutralized somehow in a seven-game series if they could only play play the low post. Because there's, there's, there's strategies for uh, a guy who is only a low post player, whereas if a guy moves out on the floor. And even in, in, in my day, uh, Bill NBA, he used to move out there and shoot threes. And, and in the ABA, you know, we had some centers who could, who could step outside and, and drop it uh, from three. And I, I, I don't particularly like seeing – Centers shooting threes because you know they're probably going to shoot thirty percent. You right. know from out there, I'd rather see them take a, a fifty or sixty percent shot or whatever. But it's it's a part of the game and spreading the floor and 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 keeping the heat on the other team and keeping your options open is just how I think the fan is appealing to the fans. And if it's appealing to the fans, it's appealing to the sponsors. Right. If it's appealing to the sponsors, the league's going to make money. So it still is a business, you know. This is not the Salvation Army team. This is, you know, <laughs> just the opposite of the Salvation Army team. Uh, but our Salvation Army team, the center still got a chance of getting some minutes. Right. So, so how does a guy like Rudy Gobert here in Salt Lake City make it work? Is it is it the system? Uh, yeah, I think they have a very good system, and he he deployed. Interestingly enough, and you know Donovan uh, being as good as he is, as young as he is, you know, just coming in and being able to, to take the reins the way that he has. Joe does does a great job in, in terms of mixing. But you know, at the end, it's, you know, are they really contenders for the championship? Right. You know, uh, can you win a seven game series with that? Yeah, that's what you have to look at because teams constantly adjust. And if you give them more to adjust to, as you know, then it's harder for them. But if, you, if you're limited in terms of the adjustments that they have to make, they make those adjustments, you know, uh, like nothing. So I would think that Rudy's backup guy has to be able to spread the floor. Gotcha. Because teams are going to play small, and they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to match that. Yeah. So, Doc, so many things to talk about, but I want to get right into post-career because – Obviously, yeah. a lot of things that you've you learned throughout your basketball journey have taught you uh, yeah. outside of basketball and business, um, and 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 how to be successful in that arena. And a lot of listeners on this show are are, are CEOs, are business people, or people who may not have a long athletic career. But talk about that transition from when you left the game and you capitalized not just on your name but your knowledge. Well, you know, uh, I'm happy to talk about that because I've been out a lot longer than I was in. <laughs> <laughs> so you figure 16 years on the hardwood as a pro, and you know that means I was I've been out way longer yeah. <laughs> than I was in. And uh, and and during that time, you know, taking from the same playbook, you know, having a, a mentor or a role model. Uh, is a significant thing to have. Uh, Bill Cosby was a special person in my life, uh, starting in my college days when he extended the hand of friendship to me and then having uh, his roots in Philadelphia and being able to visit his home and and see how he you know set up shop and look at the things that, that he was able to do. A guy named Jay Bruce Llewellyn uh, who brought me into uh, Coca-Cola bottling and uh, I have a partnership with him and Mr. Cosby uh, and Coke Bottling, as well as uh, cable TV uh, in New Jersey. You know, those were the, the that was that was the, the movement from uh, athlete to non-athlete. Right. So I, I um, 
you know, I knew that once I got out, I wasn't an athlete, but I had let God had created a uh, foundation uh, during the years that I that I played and uh, and built some relationships during that time. That was that was very important. So, you know, I got invited to be on a bank board, uh, which was you know novel. At, at that time, I was 37. I didn't have any experience at it, but they said, well, we'll teach you what to do. And, you know, just, just come in and stuff you don't know about, ask a lot of questions, and uh, we'll supply the answers, and then you'll learn. Right. You know, so you're never too old to learn, and, and that was a great place to be. You know, and, and, and then I got involved with public companies and started to understand, you know, how they work and how, you know, stock market uh, works and, you know, the road, have rode that roller coaster ride for for better than thirty years, um, and uh, but it but it really is about people. I mean, it's about people, ultimately places and and things. But people is first on, on that list. So I think Mr. Llewellyn um, provided me with the best opportunity. I mean, I, you know, in a, in in a, in a, a career as a bottler. I did better in the short term than I did in my whole basketball career. Wow. Wow. And you can't say that now because, yeah. you know, the money's so good now. But in, in my years, you know, I mean, I, you know, my initial compensation, you know, was, I guess it was uh, the Virginia Squires contract. It was uh, 125 gross, like 70 net because money was deferred. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whatever. So, you know, so I was... You know, we were, we were, you know, I think I started maybe at 125, and at the end of my career, you know, maybe it was 1.2 or 1.3 or whatever. So when you look at the total uh, at the end of the day, that was not being set up for life unless I, you know, was it was just me, and yeah. I was very spent, and, uh, and, you know, and didn't take any chances. So it wasn't being set for life coming out of basketball. You know, I left, I had, you know, assets of X and, and, and cash or Y. I said, okay, I still need to go ahead and, and do what I need to do. I need to build this. Right. And, uh, you know, so I, and I think, you know, financial uh, security is really what you want for yourself and your family. And I, I always realized there's no magic formula. It's just uh, very important to, you know, stay uh, uh, honest and, and stay with integrity yeah. in terms of your contacts and your, and your network, and, and hopefully they're that way with you. Because, you know, you do, have, you do have a target on your back. Yes. There's a very big target on the back, so there's, there's a couple of guys who've gotten me in my lifetime or whatever, and I, I just try not to make it late in my lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> because exactly. I think we That's all where have. That's the defense have to be up. Yeah, you know. And we all have had trying those. To get late in life, and you, and you can't recover from it. That's right, and that's a that's a really good lesson for. I mean, you you talked about your career and your salaries. Um, my my first deal with the Utah Jazz was a four year. I signed a four year deal. I was a seventh pick, and it was it mm-hmm. totaled a million. And you know, back then, I mean, that was that was pretty good money. Mm-hmm. But you look at what yeah. athletes are making today, and 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 they're yeah. with millions, and then they're <laughs> done, and they don't have anything left. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully they can take heed. But yeah, I mean, I was making ten million or more. I didn't even know their name. I mean, you know, <laughs> they were, you know, somebody becomes an NBA star, and so they use the terms too loosely. Yeah. In terms of star, in terms of legend, and so on and so forth. I, I always thought there was a certain performance that should be tied into making somebody a star. But now it's the salary that makes him a star. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Because he makes a lot of money. That's <laughs> Can't right. Can't play with the dog. Well, Doc, um, last question. You know, to come to the present. Obviously, this uh, coronavirus pandemic has really changed the way everything is approached now. Obviously, sports in a different mm-hmm. light, NBA basketball in particular, trying to come up with a scenario to finish out this season uh, that mm-hmm. every, everybody can be safe. Um, do you have any particular thing that you see that might be able to work? Or what's, what's your 
What's your opinion right now of, of the ideas that the NBA have to maybe continue this thing? A lot of money being lost right now, too. Um, and the, the irony of that is, you know, I've started to dabble in some other things and, uh, you know, spent some time investigating contact tracing and, uh, and actually partnered with a company that does it. So that's one of the possible solutions. Uh, there are uh, sanitization chambers, and there's the PPE, and there's obviously the social distancing. Yeah. And, and uh, at the you know at the top of the list of everything is the vaccine. So whoever comes with that and it works, you know they're you know they're they're the miracle worker. Yeah. Uh, so. And, you know, I, I think if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. So, you know, people going out and not practicing the social distancing and hanging out on the beach and right. possibly infecting other people or whatever, that's just reckless behavior. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hate that part of that, and I don't do it, and I don't allow my family members uh, to do it either. Um, so we're thinking that with this, with this, with this pandemic, uh, being and the uncertainty associated with it, that you know, if you're going to make any errors, you know, you need to err on the side of, of caution, you know, because you're putting your life at stake. And I, I never looked at basketball as life or death, right? Or whatever. And there's few things that you look at in, in your lifetime that are really life or death. This is one of those things, you know, this is one of those things you have to take to heart, uh, you have to continue to uh, process the information uh, that you get on a daily basis, really on an hourly basis, on a minute basis, and and sit and think and use your common sense yeah. and say, you know, I need to wait till we get to the other side of this before I go back to even, even doing uh, remotely anything that I was doing before and call it normal. Right. So there will be a new normal. And it might involve us continuing to wear masks. You know, you know. Before this pandemic, I mean, I used to go to the airport. I see people with masks. And when I travel around the world, and, and, as you have, I see people in in airports and bus stations and in, in, in hotel lobbies, and they were wearing masks. So they were they were doing this before the pandemic, and it's probably going to continue afterwards. And there's certain things that are going to be part of our everyday life that weren't a part of our everyday life before this happened and and, and now it is and then we got to look for the silver lining you know there's things things always happen for a reason this earth is something that has that knows how to cleanse itself to preserve itself yeah but so we have to look at this and and think in terms of the divine intervention that bringing us closer to our families and you know eliminating some things in, in the world that you know, maybe are contributing to, you know, the demise of the world. And it could be pop just a population count, period, because so many people are being lost to this. So I don't mean to be insensitive to it, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a very large-scaled business transaction going on, yeah. you know, and you're either in it or you're out of it. Yep. Hey, that's... Those are great words, man. And I've got to get this in there before I let you go. I have two sons that they binge. I think they've watched the series over and over again. But they wanted me to tell you how great you were in the office. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny, man. I, I, that day I, we, I go into uh, makeup, right? Yeah. So... And we're talking, so you're going to be in the gym. I mean, you want to take a little bit of the gray out? Said, yeah, okay. Uh, you're going to take a little bit out. If you want to take a little more, you take a little. Next thing I know, I got black hair. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched the episode. I said, oh, well, my wife sees this episode. She's not going to be too happy with it. <laughs> I think I just took like 20 years off. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Well, Doc, listen. Uh, tell them thank you. I will. I sure will. Um and I've got one that's just declared for the draft, and he just finished a couple of years at Marquette okay. University, and he's just putting the work okay. in. We'll see what happens. Okay. Nice. 
good luck, brother. Thank you, Doc. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doc. Thank you, Doc. Yeah, anytime you need me, give me a call. I appreciate you. Yep. Yeah. All right. If I get back through there, I'll let you buy me dinner, okay? All right, you got it. You got it on me. Right. On me, Doc. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, uh, joining us on Thorough Talk. Uh, it's been a, an amazing honor and pleasure for me to be able to, to talk to and have a conversation with my idol, uh, the great Dr. J, and, and his perspective on a lot of things. Uh, join us again next week. We'll have a, another guest and uh, take care of yourselves and make sure you stay safe. This is Thorough Talk. We'll talk to you later.